Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. In this episode, I talk with Precure health coach and substance misuse and addictions expert, Lisa Birch. I think one of the more powerful things here is Lisa's story around her own battle with alcohol over many decades and the thought patterns and how people, if you haven't been in this situation, think, what they think the options are, the hopelessness of it, but then the learnings, especially around neuroplasticity and dopamine and the pathways there and the balance and, and that sort of seesaw effect, that are just powerful and interesting ideas that lead to powerful and interesting tools and more than anything, hope if you've got an addiction or been misusing substances or you're working with someone who has. Really enjoy this. I think uh, the story's powerful, uh, it's personal, it's real. You're dealing with a health coach uh, who's really on top of the latest work in this area. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight Okay, welcome to the Preventionist Cure podcast and today I'm with Lisa Birch. Hi Lisa. Hi Grant. Now it's great to have you here. We want to talk about a few things but really uh, you're a health coach, you've done your training with Precure but really what you've decided to specialise in because you've got a long experience in it, I guess, both lived in and, and understanding the therapeutic aspects is substance use and addiction. So, so let's just get a bit of a feel for the... Well, let's go for the front story first. So what are you doing at the moment? Okay. So at the moment, I am a health coach. I've got a private practice. I work with people mainly online. Um, I My specialty is working with women who are drinking more alcohol than they would like to drink. Yeah. And um, I also own a pub, which is probably <laughs> slightly bizarre. Um, right, but part of the owning pub is part of the backstory part of this, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, and you got interested in health coaching and that, that angle and the, the alcohol and addictions part because... I'll start, I'll, start, I'll start in 2016, Yeah. just because that's a kind of a place to start, Yeah. which was um, 
I was newly married, got married in December 2015, and my husband, aged, uh, I don't know, 68, something like that, um, ended up in hospital with atrial fibrillation, and which stabilised, he ended up on a truckload of drugs. He was diabetic and um, very unfit, very overweight, and that was a wake-up call for him, and he decided that he needed to do something about it. At the time I was working, we owned the pub, we bought that together before we got married, um, and I was working for the DHB. So I was kind of in the health system, and one of my portfolios was launching conditions. So once we had this realisation that his diabetes was life-threatening, really, hmm. you know, it was, was affecting his whole well-being, um, I got really curious about why, you know, and, and how to fix it. So we talked to his GP and we were given a little A, was it half an A4? Like a, a, pam five? a pamphlet type thing? No, just a piece oh, of paper, yeah, 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 piece okay. of paper yeah. that, that said, you know, you need to eat less and you might want to try the 5-2 diet, I think it said, and one other idea, but nothing sensible. Um, and take drugs, which he didn't want to do. I just got online, basically, and stumbled upon um, an online program, which I purchased, which happened to be a low-carb um, and general wellness program. And he lost 20 kgs, I think, wow. quite quickly, and reversed his diabetes completely, and um, was a lot healthier. And for me, that was mind-boggling because he was I in the health system. I, I was purchasing health services for the population. I knew um, I knew how many people had diabetes and pre-diabetes. Right. So you were doing stuff specifically in the area that your husband had. Yeah. So I've been sitting at board meetings where, you know, the, 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 the talk was just around medication and, and game playing, frankly, around, um, this is slightly off point, sorry, but around targets. So, so at that point, you know, there was a target around um, HbA1c being... I know, less than something. And I had sat with the PHO and seen lists of patients. And they had all these patients highlighted who were the ones who had the HbA1c just slightly over because they were amenable to change. And I would say... Oh, I see. It's an easy way of meeting the target because yeah. you were 71 and they needed you to be under 70. So a target those yeah. nice. Let's forget about the ones of 104. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and I looked at the list and there were... A lot of Maori and a lot of young people, and they had either they had no measurement because they hadn't been anywhere near the GP, or it was it was five years old. But even some of them who had HbA1c's kind of off the off the radar, hugely high, you know, absolutely damaging. Some of them hadn't been seen for five years, but all the effort was on meeting the target. Right, meeting the target, missing the point completely. So, so that was 
the beginning, I guess, of my wake-up call in terms of the health system not being a health system, the health system just being a sick care system. Yeah. And that year, what happened? What happened that year was shortly after that, my mother died and my husband's daughter died, tragically, very young. Um, and life got really stressful. The pub was hard. It was, it was, you know, we had a, a lot of staff issues. It, it's not an easy business. I mean, I don't know, I'm persistent to think it was a good idea. Ignorance, I suppose. Um, and then my father died the next year. And I actually, I, I was drinking a lot. What, what, how I cope with life was basically drown everything in copious amounts of alcohol. And as I, a sort of avoidance of thinking about it strategy or just that's what you did? Both. You know, it, it was partly just habit. Mm-hmm. You know, partly I, I just followed the script, if you like. You know, that's what you do. Everywhere you go, there's alcohol. Um, you celebrate with alcohol, you commiserate with alcohol. Um, but I think... Yeah, you de-stress with alcohol, you know, wine for your busy day with alcohol. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. I deserve a wine. Mm. Oh, that was hard. I deserve a wine. And, and my life had actually been quite hard. My, my mother was sick a long time and quite demanding. I mean, I had done things like I had made sure there was a fridge in her room in the rest time so that I could keep my wine in it. The excuse was that she wanted the wine mm. and she occasionally had a bit of wine. Um, but, yeah, so basically the wine was just bigger and bigger in my life. It was what I felt I needed to, to cope with everything. And, but I was, I had two states. One was emotionally numb and the other was, I was blowing my top, really. And I, I sort of very emotionally labile, I guess. Mm. And... And not much in between. Yeah, in yeah. between. In between was the hangover. Right. Actually, yeah. you know, it was it was waking up at three o'clock in the morning and hating myself, feeling dreadful, um, thinking, "What have I done? What did I say? What did I do?" Um, just horror. I'd, I'd get out of bed at half past six in the morning and know I had to go to work. And um, my way of of basically getting myself to work was to go for a run. It was like actually that shock to my system seemed to be into sort of being mostly sober and good to go. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. like so. So I'd go for a run, and I, you know, I decided that high high interval, you know, high intensity interval training was the best. You know, yeah. that, that, that was, because the bizarre thing was, you know, I'd sort of worked with my husband around his health and I was supposedly a healthy person. So I was incorporating half the messages, but then I'd just blow it all with a bottle of wine. Mm. So I'd run and honestly, sometimes I thought my brain would burst. I had this constant 
feeling in my head of just, I mean, it was kind of fuzzy, but it was also felt, felt, I don't know, I had high blood pressure. Mm. Um, my heart rate was, you know, I'd get up sort of 200 when I was running and, um, but, but by the time I got home, the worst, the worst had gone. But, and while I was running, I'd be thinking, I'd be problem solving, I'd be in that. Oh yeah, so what are we going to do about this and that and the other thing and kind of toxic mess, really. But then my dad died and the, the day before his funeral, a couple of days before his funeral, I think, I went out for a run about 10 o'clock at night when I was drunk and fell over the dog and <laughs> injured my leg. Right. And um, ended up in an after-hours medical centre to see whether my leg was broken. Oh, I think I got a cellulitis in it or something. I can't remember. But the GP who I saw, oh, I said, oh, I've got these chest pains. And, you know, while I'm here, I might as well get it all off my chest. And she, she um, got really worried and said, oh, you know, you might have heart problems. And I said, no, no, I'm sure I have not I run. You know, I'm, I'm good, I'm fit, I'm... No problem with my heart. I said, I think it's probably heart then. And she asked the question, you know, how much are you drinking? Which, despite having a growing list of health issues, no one really, because that's the other thing about the health system, you know, they, they have this drinking question and they're supposed to provide brief interventions yeah. because theoretically that works. Yeah. And they get funded to do that and someone counts the numbers of brief interventions that have been given. But, but you know, and actually of two or three years before that, I had had the brief intervention, and I was asked how much I drank, and I said, well, I think I probably drink more than I should. What am I going to do about it? Yeah. Well, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> drink less. Anyway, this is not what this doctor said. They said, what are you drinking? What, what, yeah. you, what did you reply? So, I said, yeah, I, I actually... Because my sister was with me, she'd just arrived from the UK on a plane and she had pneumonia. So we went together. And for some reason, because she was there, I thought I needed to be honest. So, which I wouldn't have normally done. And I said I drank a lot. And so she sent a report to my GP, who happens to work in an addiction centre, I believe. So the next time I went to my GP, I got she basically said to me, you're an alcoholic. And I went, oh. Back no, off. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> she said, well, you're a high-functioning alcoholic, but you're an alcoholic. And and I said to her, oh, right, okay, so what am I going to do about that? Because A, I own a pub, and B, I work as a commissioner in the health service, and there is no way I'm going to any treatment service in this DHB. And no, so what am I going to do? And she said, well, I could refer you to someone in Wellington. And I said, okay, you do that. And she did try and do that, but he had actually retired. So nothing happened yep. in the story. So, but, but in a way, I think because I had the label, I, I couldn't ignore it anymore. I, I, I kind of, it, it, it shocked me out of denial. Did you tell your husband? No. No. Not then. Mm. Because, 
Because at that point, I felt I had two paths, you know, like there were two ways it could go. One is that I drank myself to death because I actually had some fairly objective evidence that that would happen before that much longer. Or I spent the rest of my life as a recovering alcoholic waiting to relapse. And neither of those options were that awesome. No, they were terrible. You mm. know, actually, actually, I thought drinking myself to death was probably the better one. Right. Because a life without alcohol didn't seem worth living. Like, you know, I used to watch Coronation Street from time to time. I don't know if you've ever watched Coronation Street. But No, not so much, what yeah. I know of it. So so there's this character, Peter Barlow, yeah. who was an alcoholic. And I don't know how many years that storyline went on. But, you know, he was either drinking and getting into trouble because he was drinking or he was going off to AA and being really miserable. Yeah. So so that's that's that was Maybe just me, but that was the message I had, that those were the two choices. No, shit, really. And, and in the middle of that was just this intense shame because there's two kinds of people in the world, aren't there? There's normal people who drink alcohol responsibly and who have a great time, and then there's alcoholics. And the alcoholics are, you know, they've got weak willpower maybe, or or maybe they're diseased or or whatever. But it's not something you want to be. It's not something you talk to. Yeah, about. I think you talked about that to me before, where you've, I, I was a little bit shocked by your assessment of that. It's like, I'm, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm not worthy. I, I'm really not a proper human in the normal sense of how people should be. Which, knowing you, and of course you are, uh, <laughs> surprised me that you said that. But that's 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 how it feels because every single day you wake up and you say, "I'm not going to do this today." You know, I've I've upset people. I've you know, I feel absolutely dreadful. You know, I'm not functioning. I know my brain's not working. You know, my eyes weren't working. I you know, I'd be everything was blurry. Um, I was anxious, I was having palpitations. You know, it's not a it's not a nice place to be. And and because you because every day you say, Well, obviously this is a stupid thing to do, you know, I'm not gonna do it, but then you do, you know, every, by, every day. Every day. By yeah. three o'clock, you know, you get through the morning and you you kind of slowly get back to feeling human and you start to get productive and you know, everything's pretty good. And then, you know, for me, it was around three o'clock where it was just a bit like a, a switch where, where I just forget that that's what I was going to do and that that's what mattered to me. Actually, by that time, all that really mattered was getting my next dose. And I'd be thinking about, you know, where I was going to buy it um, because... You know, I lived in a pub, it was easy to get those, but but I didn't really want to know how much I was drinking. So I, you know, I would sometimes go to the supermarket or sometimes I'd go to a bottle store and I'd only buy one bottle because I was only going to drink one bottle. But, you know, usually I'd drink that one and hide the bottle and go and get another one. So, 
So, so that, that sense, you know, you hate yourself. There's two, there's two ways you can go. There's, there's, there's either blame or shame, really, because you're doing something that is so not in your value system. You know, that you can't live with that without either just intense shame or making it someone else's fault. So, so I think you remember saying you would be badly drunk and that in your value system. Tell me about that. that. It was more than once. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing, there was nothing right. There was nothing I thought was right about being drunk in front of my kids. No, it, it was, you know, I, my value system, I was, I was someone who was a, a good mother and a, a good role model yeah. and was teaching my kids right and wrong, how to be good human beings. But, you know, then I would behave in a way that was none of those things. What did they make of it? Um, my, <laughs> it's interesting, I was with both my kids in the car, they're both adults, and we went on a holiday together last year, and I don't know how it came up, but my son said to me, that wasn't that bad, Mum, was it? And I thought, oh, that's good, he didn't think it was that bad, so I said, no, no, it was, it was fine. <laughs> and my daughter ripped onto me later, and she said, Mum, it was, it was terrible. You know, it was really bad. Mm. So, so somehow, maybe I just got worse. Yeah. It was four years between my kids. So maybe yeah. when he was growing up, I had it more under control. And he's always busy doing what he's doing. He probably didn't even notice. Whereas yeah. she's much more in tune with, you know, I'm, I'm female, she's female. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. 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 So how did this all fight? How did you start to resolve it? So, so yeah. So once I got that shock of, you know, you're an alcoholic. Um, I had been like I wouldn't even like Lotta Dan had written her book Mrs. D is going without sometime around about then I think I wouldn't read the book. I wouldn't even you know go on social her social media site because someone might see. Um, but but something, and I didn't ever, I didn't even Google, you know, am, am I an alcoholic? Because somehow the world might know I was Googling it. Well, they probably do. <laughs> they probably do, yeah. yeah. But um, nonetheless, on my Facebook feed, I started to see this um, thing, woman called Annie Grace come up. First of all, there was a woman called George or someone who had a sort of a hypnotherapy program. And remember, I'd already by the stage, I'd bought this metabolic program online mm. that had worked. So I was starting to, to, to be less sceptical of the fact that I might find something online that worked. And I, I did try the hypnotherapy one, which didn't work. Um, and this Annie Grace one um, was a three month program and it was really expensive. It was about 1300, I think, um, New Zealand dollars. And I'd looked at it and I, I was curious. But I thought, well, there's no way I'm spending $1,300 on something that's not going to work. That's a waste of money. So I, I, didn't, I didn't buy that program. But then, end of 2018, she released a new book and a new program that was a 30-day alcohol experiment, she called it. 
This is her book, The Naked Mind. So, so her original book was called This Naked Mind. Yeah. And and then she kind of repackaged um, that into a new book that basically put the same information into sort of thirty chunks and said, "Come on, just give it a go. Just you know, you can do thirty days, and I'll I'll show you how you can change your mind really and get control over alcohol." And it was forty seven US. So, Which you felt was better than 300. Yeah. yeah. And, and bear in mind that this is, this is 18 months after I fell over the dog and ended up at the doctor. So there was quite a long period of time of, you know, just being in misery but not knowing what to do about it. So I figured the $47 was going to be, you know, okay. And I could afford that. Had nothing to lose, really. I was spending that much on wine and couple of days. So I bought the book and um, I had to pre-order the book and I signed up for the program which started on the 1st of January 2019 and ignored it for the first day. Oh, the first the first day because the state's kind of a day behind us. So January the 1st, <laughs> January the 1st I didn't need to do anything because it wasn't January the 1st for her. Yeah. So January the 2nd I thought, oh, I'm supposed to be stopping drinking today. But I'd had, I just had no faith in myself whatsoever. But I did drink less. I probably drank half a bottle. January the 3rd, some little pathetic thing went wrong. I think my husband looked at me sideways or something, and I just lost, lost it totally and drank a bottle. So I woke up on January the 4th with a stinking hangover. And I'm just... At that point, I, at least at least I had the sense to open the book, and I actually read the whole book that day, and I watched the first video, and she she said, basically it gave me hope. She said, look, you know, because because she described her journey, which was exactly my journey. You know, that's that's the place she'd been in, and she convinced me that her life was really better and richer and that I had nothing to lose by losing alcohol and that it could be done. Yeah, that and wasn't the thought pattern that you had. You thought that alcohol was needed for this yeah, and this and yeah. without it you wouldn't have this or that. Yeah. So so it kind of caught me at that low ebb and I thought, and it gave me hope. So basically, basically a third path opened up. You know, I had the dying author miserable recovering alcoholic and suddenly I had this little glimmer of hope that actually maybe there was another way. Maybe there's a life without alcohol that's all, that's all right mm. and I can do it. I can get there. And at, and at that point, I just toughed it out for that first 24, 48 hours, as she suggested. And, and you know, like literally within days, with help, so so you know, there, there was a community, there was a Facebook group, and there were 2,000 people from all over the world who signed up to, that was her first live alcohol experiment, mm. now she runs them every two months. Um, and so that was another key for me, I felt anonymous, you know. Like, but supported. Yeah. yeah, like there wasn't gonna be anyone I knew, I didn't, you know, it wasn't my little rural community, this was mainly Americans, who cared what I did. 
and but they were people they were all people just like me and they were intelligent people and you know um, yeah just normal people who ended up in an abnormal situation and, and where are you at the end of the month so I didn't January the 4th, 2019 is the last day I had a, no, January the 3rd is the last day I drank alcohol. So by about day five, I was just feeling like a different person. And it was tough, you know, I had bad days, but but certainly I knew, I, I had gained enough that there was no way I was ever, ever going to go back there, you know, that that it was, life became progressively better. My health improved really, really fast. Like my resting heart rate dropped like 10, 10 points in four days or something. Wow. You know, really dramatic. You know, my blood pressure's gone from a 130 over God knows what to, you know, 106 over 60 something. I mean, it's just, really dramatic physical improvements and you know and everything else is is better I mean I'm happy and it, you know it worked and basically it worked because she she helped me unpack all those unconscious beliefs that I was carrying around but also there's one thing that I think has been big here that I've heard you say can you just help clarify this is you go well I'm not one drink away from relapsing into whatever state was on, I actually just choose not to drink and I don't miss it. Yeah. Um, what's the, that, that sounds sort of the same, but slightly different to us about that. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I can't drink. Yeah. I'm not saying I can't drink because I'm an alcoholic. Because the minute I say that, I'm going to want to drink probably. I'm saying alcohol in no way enriches my life. Yeah. There's, nothing, there's nothing it does that makes my life better. So today, and for me, this for the foreseeable future, but certainly today, I choose not to drink it. But it's my choice. It's yeah. not because I can't. It's not because I'm broken. It's because I don't want to. Yeah, it's quite a different way of thinking about it, right? Yeah. And it's worked well. Yeah. So I have agency over that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not worrying about my addiction, which is doing press-ups in the corner. Yeah. No. And oh I'm yeah, tell me that one, the one about the press-ups in the corner basically. I, I think that that is an analogy that's used in twelve-step programs. I haven't actually been to one, but yeah, that your addiction is kind of doing press-ups in the corner, gaining strength, just running so fast and ready to go, yeah. come back and. So and, you've got you've got to be hyper vigilant. Yeah. And and the other, I mean, the other concept that you know that the, the chips, the counting days, and going back to zero yeah. if you fall off the wagon. I mean, yeah. what crap actually. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have a slip, then you've had a slip. But you yeah. don't, you know, if you're climbing a mountain and you fall over, you don't go back down to the bottom and start again. No. You pick up where you were. Yeah. And the normal process of climbing a mountain has slipped, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I just want to go back a little bit further in time as well, because it's like sometimes with this didn't start at the point you started in some ways, it probably you were, you were drinking through many decades before that. Do you want to go there? Yeah, yeah. So now I reflect back, I would say that my addiction journey started at 18. And in my first year at university, where I, I 
as a child, from the time I was 10, I was always going to be a doctor. That's what I wanted to do. Very passionate about it. And I went down to Otago University and did a medical intermediate. And decided I didn't want to be a doctor. Yeah. Um, for a variety of reasons. But I was intensely miserable. And yeah, didn't have didn't have the resilience to deal with sort of being away from home, being apart from my codependent mother, um, being away from my boyfriend of three years, being in a hostel when I'm an introvert, mm. um, and 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 the loss of my dream. You know, I'd gone from someone who was going to be a doctor, which in my family was a big deal. You know, I've been a high achiever at school. You know, I was a diligent good, well-behaved child, and and I kind of didn't know who I was. And and I just floundered around. And, you know, if alcohol had been available then, like it is now, I probably would have just found alcohol. Um, but it wasn't. It, it, so And I didn't, I hadn't really drunk very much at all. I did my one foray to the pub that year I actually got arrested. <laughs> I have a criminal record for underage drinking. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, my, my problems with alcohol started then. But what I, I actually made a deliberate decision to try smoking because I've been really opposed to smoking. I, you know, I only lose and smoke, but I said, well, I just don't know what to do with myself. I feel so awful. And I could buy cigarettes. And I discovered that made me feel so much better instantly. So that started, I, I used nicotine basically to manage my emotions for, for years. Um, so that was, I was 18 when I started smoking. And I was still smoking when I had my first child and felt terrible about it. But it wasn't as, you know, he's now 33. It wasn't such a big thing, the, you know, knowledge about the dangers of smoking. When I first started, you know, my first job, we smoked in the, at the office, mm. at our desks. Um, by the time I was pregnant with my second child, I think the, the, the understandings of the dangers of smoking in pregnancy were pretty well known. But I couldn't stop. And I tried... I tried really hard, and I talked to my GP about it, who actually said, oh, don't worry. She said, it doesn't kill, it doesn't kill the baby or anything, and probably the stress of trying to stop will be worse for the baby than stop, you know, than smoking. But I went to a couple of... And that wasn't true? No. no I went to a couple of programs, but... Um, I... The other thing that happened to me was I had a very beloved old dog we'd had for years and I when I was pregnant with my second child I shut him in the car in the middle of summer and forgot. He had a habit of chasing people and someone had gone to town and he died. And I was just absolutely devastated by that and felt really, really guilty. And that overlaid on top of the guilt I was feeling about the fact I was still smoking. I don't even think I was smoking much. Like, I think it was literally one or two cigarettes a day. I can't really remember. Mm. But, but I sat down and I just, through my tears, I, I said to myself, you've got to stop smoking now because if anything happens to this baby, you'll never forgive yourself. And 
my baby was still born. And I'll never know whether the smoking contributed to that. But you not. felt that? I absolutely, you know. I just felt like a criminal. Mm. You know, I'd murdered my dog and my baby. And and that was a that was just that was a shit. Absolute shit time in life. But I picked myself up and um, got pregnant again quite quickly. My my third child was born about a year later. And I You'd stopped smoking by then. I tell you the last day I had a cigarette was <laughs> September the twenty second, nineteen ninety one. Yeah. Um day I discovered I was pregnant, yeah. So so I didn't smoke, and I didn't smoke, and I didn't drink when I was pregnant with her. I think multivitamin was about the only substance I took. And but then once she was born, it all just came back. You know, I was I was still grieving. Um, I had this this new baby and uh, quite a stressful life for a variety of reasons. And I it, and by then you could buy wine in a cardboard, you know box and it was cheap and readily available buy it at the supermarket and and I started got into the habit of having a drink while I was cooking dinner you know the sort of five o'clock dealing with scratchy kids and it made it all easier so that's that would have been you know mid-90s and it just slowly 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 ratcheted up over the years do you feel that any of that trauma of as part of what you were trying to deal with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, that's just why you brought it up. You think that's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because my inability to to, to regulate myself without a substance then, you know, just took me... Because I felt terrible about the fact I was smoking. You know, it's, it's that not being able to control yourself. You know, from the time you were toilet trained, really, eh? sort <laughs> of having self-control is is about being a a functioning human being so so yeah whatever it is that you're doing that you can't stop doing eats away so i guess let's shift now let's talk about now and what you know now that's different and i think um you more than anyone has taught me more about the biology of this enormity of it, and you, that, let's just talk about that. You know, what's why do you think addiction is a normal response, and why is it normal? What's the way out of it? Let's get into that stuff. It's pretty interesting. Sure. So just, I guess the the just taking one slight step back to sort of between then and now yeah. is is that that um, juxtaposition of sort of the realisation that diabetes was something that you could fix and then the realisation on top of that that alcohol was something that you didn't need to take, you could fix. Yeah. Got me really, really curious. Yeah, they went lifelong illnesses. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that, that whole idea of empowerment and developing agency and that that was when I, um, I signed up to the Precure course and I started training as a health coach. I also signed up with Annie Grace to um, I'm certified as a coach with her yeah. and I'm currently doing a neuroscience course so I can't yeah 
I think, really, really curious about the why, because if you know why, then you can fix it. Mm. So, yeah, I think for me that the really, the really key thing is around agency and that your brain, your brain is plastic, which, I mean, I, I, I think I probably also believed you can't teach an old dog new tricks, which was, was the belief not that long ago, mm. that your brain, you know, was kind of permanently wired as you grew up and by the time you were 20 or so, that was it and you, you couldn't really change it. Whereas now we know that in actual fact, you know, the brain is incredible. It's changing. Like It's constantly changing. It has to change for you to even be alive. Yeah. And our yeah. brains are changing right now. Yeah. Talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so if you understand that and that, but we do, we do have these kind of, um, what's the word? Hard wiring in terms of the things that will keep us alive. So, like, if we were just completely... You're not going to unwire your need to breathe. Yeah, yeah. Or be thirsty. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. At, 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 at one level, you've got bits of your your brain that are driving your body to, to breathe and your heart to beat and, you know, that, that those basic functions that keep you alive, your digestion keeps going. And then the next level, if you like, is that those things that... Are sort of instinctive. Um, I don't know what neuroscientists would actually talk about that, yeah. but but that are in that limbic system of your brain that make you want to do things. Like so, so there's a reward circuit in the brain, yeah. which is the thing that basically is easily manipulated to drive an addiction. Right, and it needs to be able to be manipulated because if it wasn't able to be manipulated, you couldn't function because you need to cycle depending on where you are, where you're living, your environment, into places that you have. You need extra motivation to go and find food or a mate or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you need extra reason to run away. Yeah. Uh, and when you've got the reward, then there needs to be some pleasurable experience because that will drive home the probability of it happening again or not yeah. so is that, that's yeah. what you're saying right am i paraphrasing correctly yeah so 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 basically this reward system in your brain it makes you it makes you want something mm. and it's it's powered by the neurotransmitter dopamine predominantly i mean yeah. the, there's like this incredibly complex sort of dance or symphony of of electrical and chemical signals going on in your brain all the time mm. but so, but dopamine is is the one that really makes you want to do something. Mm. And when they knocked out dopamine receptors in a, a mouse, I think it was, or a rat, like it, it literally didn't want to eat. Yeah, its you motivation know, you, is gone. Yeah, you can put food in its mouth and it will chew it and swallow it and uh, they say appear to enjoy it. How do you know that a mouse yeah. is enjoying anything? But but it wouldn't walk across the cage to, to get food because it had no desire. Mm. You know, we wouldn't breed. We 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 would sit around. I mean, I guess the 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 opposite to that very dopaminergic state is being completely blissed out, mm. probably on some drug. Mm. You know, we have. <laughs> I don't well, I mean, that's that's essentially what's happening 
you jam dopamine up so much with say methamphetamine, there's no, it's at a ceiling. It's not going any further. You're not desiring, there's nothing else that's going to motivate you at that moment. Yeah. 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 And so dopamine's really absolutely critical for driving motivation. And it's, it's also, so there's three main pathways and one is this, just the, the wanting pathway in the stratum, and then it also um, has a pathway through to the motor cortex, and um, Parkinson's disease is related to dopamine mm. deficits, and but it also signals up to the frontal cortex, so that's the bit that makes you basically think about how you're going to get what you can, and and communicate with other people and make a plan and all those things so so that's it's, it's a really really important system but it, it gets you get like these giant surges with drugs and they they do interact with different parts of the brain depending on the substance but they all share that basically a big rush a flood of dopamine so that, that so that you really really want something, and next time the next time you want to get that same outcome, it's pleasurable. Yeah. So yeah. you so you might have some sugary food. It might double your dopamine. I think you might have some cigarettes. It might quadruple your dopamine. Yeah, and uh, if, if alcohol, you, yeah, um, methamphetamine, you know, like a thousand times, that's the one that is the biggest. Yeah, that's right. So 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 it's in that scale. Methamphetamine pretty much maxes the system out. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's so addictive, right? It, it pushes yeah. you here, you reach this peak, um, and then you want more. But something strange is happening here, right, about wanting more. The system is in adaptation. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me about that. Yeah. So it's a one point to, yeah. Like it's really, Im how it works is by basically telling you that something's good. So if you're, if you're a caveman and you're a woman, yeah. Probably a woman, because you're out gathering, you know, food rather than hunting something. Yeah. And you come across a patch of berries or something. There'll be a whole lot of things about that experience that help you find them again. So it's it's about laying down those pathways for something that is has a high survival value. Mm. So broccoli tends not to work, for example. Which something with lots of calories probably does. And there's some interesting stuff around foraging behaviour in terms of sugar and mm. certain times of the year. But but what happens when you stimulate those dopamine pathways too much is that you get a down regulation. So you get this, this they don't really, I don't think, completely understand because there's slightly different stories. But I think there's two processes. One is that your brain down regulates your dopamine receptors. So it takes more and more and more of something to get the same effect. And also you tend to have other processes that counteract it because your brain wants to stay at homeostasis. You know, it, it, it can't be in that place all the time. Things need to be pre-settled. Right, so let's take the an example. Like you have, you ramp up your dopamine system and dopamine production 10, 100, 1,000 fold, whatever. Um, that's very pleasurable, that initial hit. But immediately there's a shift so the same dose the next time won't achieve the same outcome yeah. and when you go back 
as you say, am I getting this right? You, you actually go back below normal. Yeah. So you actually feel, with, is, is that what withdrawal is? Or is that the yeah, wrong word? Yeah, so you, you get a, a state where your brain adapts, so it sort of down-regulates your hedonic threshold. Yeah. And basically you, you feel less pleasure in everything. And, and you've pumped up other stress hormones largely that yeah. sort of counteracted that positive effect. So you get a sort of a tipping. Um, Anna Lemke you know, has this seesaw yeah. um, analogy where you know the more you sort of put um, pleasure, um, pump up the pleasure, the more your gremlins, as she calls them, Come back. Um, jump on the other side. And so over, over time you get that adjustment into right so, so, so initially this is your feeling good feeling normal just being a human being you have you start to over pump up your dopamine and it responds by pushing your normal state back here yeah so now i don't feel very good yeah. now i'm more motivated to get back to normal i think i'll do that by pursuing that substance again and and all you're doing and i get people talk about this with tobacco if i'm right is that um, actually with a cigarette all you're doing is getting back to the the state of a, a normal non-smoker. Yeah. 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 Like literally, literally, that withdrawal yeah. is is those gremlins or those opponent processes, yeah. whatever you're going to call them, kind of making you feel terrible. So you you want to do more of it just to deal with the withdrawal. So right. basically, the the pleasure you get is actually just stopping feeling shit from withdrawing. Yeah. So yeah. And, and and so then. That's actually just a completely normal process for the brain to happen. This is how the dopaminergic system works. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's not something wrong with you. Yet, 100 people get a knee operation and 100 people get prescribed oxycodone and only 10 come out addicted. What's, why? So it's a Shouldn't they all be addicted? Yeah, well, they don't, they don't all get addicted. Yeah. So... I mean, there's a, a, a variety of reasons why people get addicted. It was a point I just can't quite remember what it was I was going to make. Well, what, what, one, one is, is, is part of the idea that, I mean, that the initial biology that you bring in, the plasticity of that system pertaining to you, your history, your brain, it's we're, we're different, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so every brain, for a start, every brain has been wired differently so your, your your brain is your experience really your yep. brain is the sum total of the things that have happened to you and the thoughts and the memories and so forth that that, that are in your mind are the physical architecture of your brain i mean in terms of sort of finer detail obviously we all have some brain structures that are the same but but in terms of the memories and thoughts you know, they are actually sort of physical things in the brain that are that are yours. So, if you've if you've grown up with neglect, for example, those sort of circuits are that that are around you know regulation and um, control and love and all this all of the good experiences that are built into a brain in a loving interaction between a child and a, an adult. Yeah, they they will have they'll be missing those, yeah. and they'll have created coping strategies in some way. But then, if you if you go in with something that lodges in your 
sort of endorphin system, yeah. which some drugs do, then you could be really, really vulnerable for that. Like, you might feel loved. You know, the drug might give you that, that feeling of, of love and comfort that you've never had. So, so you're likely to be particularly susceptible to that. Yeah, yeah right. But, but you're not going to get addicted if you don't do something for a start. Yeah. So, so like your environment matters in that. Um, yeah. If you don't, if you don't ever use a substance or a behaviour, then you're yeah. not going to get addicted. If you, if you're using it to for some emotional need, then you are likely to. Yeah. But it does depend. Like I. You know, I went through a period where I smoked a lot of cannabis and I just got really, really depressed and paranoid and it was horrible and eventually I was intelligent enough to link the two together and think, I'll stop. Right, but that's not the experience for everyone. No, some yeah. people some people find it, you know, it, it, it tends to heighten all their senses and makes them feel, you know, the world is amazing. Hmm. So so let's talk about getting unaddicted then. If if we think about this neuroplasticity and the dopamine pathway and it's, it's upregulation, it's downregulation, it's moving all over the place and why it would do that. How do you, how do you get back so to normal when it's out of sync? So basically you've, you've, like, you've carved these channels. So Caroline Leaf is this woman who's, who's written a number of books and she talks about managing your mind and she uses this prop. She's got this like a giant tree so she says, you know, thoughts are like trees and they grow. You know, the more often you do something, the more it grows. So you can end up with these toxic pathways that that your thoughts will go in. And but basically if you don't use if you don't use a pathway, then it, it dies away. So you've got these big pathways in your brain, that's your default. You know, they've been built up because you're your brain and body think you're doing something that's going to keep you alive, mm. which is obviously, really, it's not. Mm. It's been kind of tricked. So so it makes sense that it's been built. So you, your job is to basically, like a, an analogy might be, and I've heard someone use, you know, if you, if you go from, you go out this door of your house and you go to space over here every day, 10 times a day, and over time you, you dig this, you know, channel, you've got this pathway that eventually you can't even climb out of it. Mm. But actually you can just go out the back door and, you know, and forge your way through the forest and over time you'll, you'll create a new path yeah. and the old path will grow over and it'll be all gone. And, and that's literally what, it, what happens in your brain. So you, you, you retrain your brain. And so I think um, we'll talk about uh, Lemke's work, a US psychiatrist is sort of at the forefront of this. Yeah. But the, I guess the three stages in addiction in the 20th century going into the 21st century, the, the first path was the one that you initially believed that this is sort of moral delinquency and uh, that sort of lack of character and strength. That's really what spurred the US war on drugs that permeated through the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so has, I mean, the history... Is really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I think the before there was so much understanding of how the brain worked, the, there was the feeling that the drug was the problem. Yeah. So 
you know, you, the drug is addictive. If you take the drug, then you will get addicted. So this gets good rid of the drug, criminalise it. Yeah. Yeah. And and at first, first of all, I mean, it was it was you know you are you're a bad person, you're a criminal, and then the, then they started to do brain scans and things, and they started to see that that some of these addicts actually had brains that had you know shrunken prefrontal cortexes and. Yeah. You know that, that there were measurable changes in the brain, right, and that sort of led to a disease yeah. view, which is is still only grading hold now, and there's certainly an improvement, but it's not quite right, is it? Yeah. So, so basically, if you you look at the DSM, you know there is a diagnosis of substance use disorder. I think I'm trying to remember exactly yeah. what what the disease is at the moment, but it's characterised by by particular symptoms which are around not being able to control your consumption yep. basically and it having a negative effect on your life. And it's it is characterised as being a a chronic relapsing disease. And, and so that's and that's the space alcoholics alcoholics anonymous exists in, right? Yeah. Um, I'm one drink away, we've talked about that. Yeah. But really this what we're calling the third wave, I guess we're calling it the third wave, aren't we? Is is the neuroplasticity view and Lemke's view that that's not the case. Yeah. So so I guess that some of the things that happened was there was, I mean, like the Vietnam War experience where a, a very large number of American servicemen were taking drugs in Vietnam and they were really worried. Like heroin and things like this. Yeah. 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 Mainly heroin, I think. Yeah. Um, government was really, really worried. They had all these vets coming home and, you know, terrible addiction problem. In actual fact, most of them came home and just stopped using. Yeah. Um, and then there were the Rat Park experiments where. You know, you can you can get rats addicted um, quite easily, but there was and, and low, lonely, socially isolated, yeah. low yeah. low input environments. But you put them in a park, or yeah. we call it a rat park, but was I guess yeah, and, and, rich, and enriched environment. Other you know, rats to have sex with all the stuff, and they yeah, don't get addicted yeah. to drugs at all. Same no, drugs. They're not, they're not interested. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and they also started to discover that. Um, brains that of people who are obese, for example, often have the same sort of look to them. And by the way, there's a whole pile of behavioural addictions that, you know, there's really no difference in someone who's got a gambling problem to someone who's got a drug problem. Mm. And so so basically, there was this, the beginning of the understanding that, that this isn't a disease, this is just a, a state of the brain that where the brain has adapted to what it's doing, and yes, that that does show changes, but but that's reversible. And you simply stop that. Yeah. But so that's as long not as that, you, it's not as easy as you think. No, I mean, as long as you go on doing that thing, your brain can never recover. Right. Really, I mean, that's it's it's because the problem is that you've got this cycle of. It's not going to unadapt if you're still drinking or smoking or whatever. No. So, so uh, Lemke talks about her surprising finding with her clients that a large number of people will actually, in therapy, commit to trying abstinence for 30 days. And there's a higher percentage that is successful out with support than you otherwise might imagine. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I guess it's. I mean, I guess it's. It's very much like my experience that if you, if you package it up the right way, um, 
most people are prepared to give it a go. If you say to someone, you can recover, but actually you're not going to if you go on doing this thing, yeah. then you know they're, they're likely to give it a try. I guess it's the third path that you talked about. There's, there's going until you, you die. There's, I'm going to have a disease and I'm the, it's doing press-ups in the corner. It's going to rip back and get me at my situs flinch because you're human, you will flinch. Yeah. But there's another path which is actually, hey, this is a normal neurological process. Um, do things the right way and you'll be the same as yeah. everyone else. That, that, yeah, that I've, I've got a, a brain that can change. Yeah. And that, that these things that, that feel so essential to me at the moment yeah. actually aren't. And in actual fact, you know, you can start to engage people with the, the realisation that they're really doing them harm. Yeah. Like the, the whole social media thing, for yeah. example, you know, like connection is one of our most basic needs and that's where social media can, can be very addictive and very toxic and, you know, that sort of getting likes and things. Mm. Um, so people feel compelled to, to, to go on doing it because it is dopaminergic thing getting getting likes feeling popular yeah 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 but but if you start to really dig into that with people well what is it really doing for you you know yeah. what is it actually making you feel better it's funny you should say that because a couple of weeks ago i wrote a post that was really important to me uh and something happened to that post and it on facebook it got um 250,000 views and on linkedin it had 180,000 Wow. And uh, these things have been happening, and it was quite rewarding, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, and then a couple of weeks later, which is just a couple of days ago, I was like, "Oh, this is actually not doing me any good. I'm keep checking. I'm going to stop this. In fact, I've stopped watching all the news, reading any newspapers, and um, engaging this at all." And something really weird happened to me yesterday, is that. I was like, well, I'm not looking at social media. And I was just sitting in my office, not doing anything. And, I, and before I knew it, I'd done this. And because it recognized my face, it just opens. And I'd pushed Facebook and I was in it, scrolling. And I hadn't even, Yeah. this this is not even a thing I'd, I, I, this, there was no conscious thought to getting to that point. And it didn't happen to me once yesterday. It happened to me seven or eight times. I, I'm frankly shocked. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm on the 30-day program at the moment, but they, <laughs> yeah. and I'll have to rewire. But I think, you know, in that context, that's probably what's happened, right? I've had such yeah. a massive hit. Yeah, absolutely. People, people liking my post and yeah. telling me how awesome I was, and I wasn't yeah. that awesome, to be honest. It was just a post. But um, yeah, that's very, yeah. very, very rewarding. Yeah, but rewarding in a very negative way because now my brain needs that just to get back to normal. Yeah. God, my God. <laughs> which is why, which is why, you know. The internet can deliver those rewards so instantly, you know, and and because the other thing the brain loves is is kind of um, variety yeah. and uh, and a bit of um, challenge, yeah. which is why gambling is so addictive. Yeah, that you never quite know yeah. when when you're going to win, and actually even losing can be rewarding. Mm. So the internet delivers that up, you know. And, and it's designed to. Yeah. That, that sort of, is it going to be this time? Is it going to be this time? Is it going yeah. to be this time? Okay, so 
like the more I think about this, the more I'm connecting some dots, the more shocked I am. Um, first of all, about myself, I guess it's normal neurology, but yeah, the, the fact that I can be on and in Facebook or Instagram before I've, not even consciously, yeah. um, that system's driving that behavior. I don't want to do it. I had no intention of doing it. In fact, I purposely at the start of the day said, I'm not doing this because it's not good for me and I'm feeling worse. So at least I was able to identify that, right? Yeah, because the stats around, um, yeah, how I think, I can't remember the stats, but like a huge proportion of the population are on their phones within 15 minutes of being awake. So, so, so hours a day on so, so, so what's a 12 year old supposed to do? Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, and sorry, I've got to talk about porn. Sorry. Okay, well, yeah, let's <laughs> talk about porn. <laughs> Because this was this was really scary to me. Yeah. That because and again I can't remember the stats, but like you know, porn's been around forever. Yeah. It's it's a a, a basic biological drive, mm. obviously. And if you go back to our cavemen, you know, yeah. probably hiding in the bushes, watching the you know the woman bathing or yeah. you know sneaking off behind the bike sheds in our day or my day. Yeah. But older than you, you know that that. That's what we do. Yeah. We we experiment, we're curious. Mm. And I um when I was a child my dad seemed to have penthouses in the back toilet, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um I, I I found one under my son's bed when he was sixteen. You know, yeah. that's yeah, just normal stuff, right? Yeah. right? yeah. And and it's not that harm harmful. Mm. But now a huge percentage of internet traffic is sex related. And, uh, and children are seeing it accidentally, usually, but also they're curious. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, someone, I can't remember who it was, you know, if you, you give a penthouse to a kid and said, but just don't look at page 36 and 37, you know, where would they go? Yeah. And the stuff they're seeing is... From memory, there's more than two pages in there. But that... <laughs> you know, it, it's highly rewarding. But the same process happens. What rewards you today isn't going to reward you tomorrow. Yep. So it's going oh, okay, to because the dopamine's evolved. So you're curious. It's a normal human response. You're going to look at it, jams dopamine you're out because it's, really a, good. It's, it's a normal human drive. Yeah. Same cycle will come to that. You feel worse. You want more of it. Yeah. Um, so what are you going to do? You're going to go to something more extreme. Yeah. And when you actually look at, you know, the, the I, I wish I could remember the stats. I will yeah. dig them out at some point. But you know the like interfamily sex mm. is, I think, the most common um, form of porn. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because it needs to be more extreme. Right, so, and that pushes it in that way. Yeah. 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 So, so what works for you today, because masturbation is involved, yep. usually, um, isn't going to work tomorrow. So you start. To, so, to, if man goes up, it comes back worse. You need more. Yeah. Yeah. So you you. I'm told, it's not an area of expertise, but I'm told, you know, they'll be they'll be there with multiple tabs open and flicking from one to another and you know it things stop working. Yeah. Right. You know, they can't have a normal relationship because That's not extreme enough. No. And there's and a it lot makes of, perfect sense in that dopamine model. Yeah. There's a lot of sexual dysfunction that yeah. often gets medicated and yeah. um yeah, it's and it's 
very, very common yeah. amongst particularly young people because they're vulnerable to it. And you know, you, if they're on the internet, they're seeing it. Yeah, and, and why wouldn't you be? You're curious. Like it would be weird if you didn't. Yeah, because because you know you're an adolescent. Yeah. What do you think about all the time? Yes. Yeah. But you're seeing these gross, violent, perverted mm. images all the time, and then you start to feel that, that whole shame cycle, and then you you can't interact with you. Yeah, right. So we can do. understand that in exactly the same way we've talked about other things. Yeah. And, and the internet can deliver it. It's the same as internet gaming. Yeah. You know, highly, highly rewarding. That that's It's designed to be addictive. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, they know exactly, you know, how many times you should fail yeah. to keep you interested. Right. Yeah. So it's, don't, don't, it gets your dopamine up. You've, eventually you need to be gaming just to get back to normal. So parents out there, that's actually a good point, isn't it? You, yeah. Your kids are using gaming to get back to normal. Yeah. Ouch. And they might be awake all night doing it. Yeah. You know, they they Right, which is just taking as much as they can to try and get it back to normal. Yeah, yeah. and it gets there's no out. Yeah. Yeah. And then and this is the bit I love, because this is this is where it all comes back to to physiology really, is that it all dysregulates your physiology as well. Yeah. And so you end up often with sleep disturbed, um, nutrition disturbed, yeah. and and then you feel, you feel bad, you know, yeah. um, of course you feel bad, but then, and this is what I reckon happens, we've got a world that's saying, oh my God, we've got a mental health crisis, yeah. and, you know, we're trotting off to the doctor and getting a diagnosis, whereas in actual and, and a medication. Fact, yeah. In actual fact, you're just living a lifestyle that is really, really bad for your for your brain. Mm. Okay, that that is a good point. Yeah. Okay, let's just let's just finish off with the last little bit talking about these behavioural therapies act and, and the census acceptance commitment stuff. Uh, so my sort of understanding, and you'll know more than me here, of course, is that being a human and having this natural cycle of, of dopamine being here and then jacking up to here means that you're going to have emotions that are negative. I want to come out of this space and I'm now motivated to go into this space and back again. So positive and negative emotions are a normal part of being a human. Yeah. No, that's a normal thing. So that's probably part of the acceptance part. Um, and if you're pushing into that feeling good the whole time, then that's going to get dysregulated and you've talked about that. Now, the commitment part comes, and you've talked about this quite a lot with your own self here, it's like, I've got some values, I want to live a life like this, I want to be, a, I'm, I see myself as a good parent, I'm not trying to be drunk and in and, and, uh, and, and a mood that is out of control in front of my children, those aren't my values. Uh, and so the therapeutic situation is to talk about towards moves and away moves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's it's they call it delay discounting. Yeah. So, where you know the reward now is yeah. worth more than the reward. You know, you'd rather have. It's a smaller reward now. You'd rather than have five dollars now than six dollars a week or whatever. Yeah. Because because the reward now seems more you know more real. So that's mm. with, with even money, but with an addiction, 
then you've you've grossly exaggerated the value of the reward now, and you lose touch. You've discounted. Is that what the discounting is? You've discounted yeah, the one in the future. Yeah. You you and and you've often lost touch with it completely because, like you know, I was I was seriously thinking, well, I'll just drink until I'm dead. So yeah. I had no. That's goal. that is quite. That's discounting the end thing quite badly. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. So. There's two, there's two parts to that. One is you need to reconnect yeah. with, with your future self and your, your goals and your values. And the other is you need to devalue that, that immediate reward. Yeah. So for me, that was, that was understanding that um, I didn't need alcohol to socialise, that actually um, I, uh, understanding that alcohol increased my stress. Yeah. It literally increased my cortisol levels, made me feel shit, did nothing, you know, to, to yeah. deal with stress. Knowing that, you know, that that current reward and reconceptualizing it is this is just my body wanting to um, not have to deal with withdrawal. Yeah. You know, basically I'm just wanting to yeah. fix fix the withdrawal symptoms. Once I could conceptualise that, you know, it, it, it all was possible. So I think that's that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And then what about the on this sort of choice point when it's coming down to it? It's like, am I going to do this or this? Yeah, and 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 that has to be values based, right? That's values based, yeah. absolutely. So it's so it's it's knowing you can change. It's having hope. It's it's being really clear about what matters to you. Yeah, because that's that's the other thing I think about the society we live in is because we are we are primed constantly around instant gratification that, you know, we need this and we need that and we need, you know, because someone's making money out of it. And, and because we, we kind of told what's wrong with us all the time, we lose touch with, with the present. Because that's, that's the other thing we haven't talked about is that whole, um, you know, Stopping, stopping focusing on the dopamine, what I haven't got, but focusing on what I have got right now. So for me, then in my life now was, here was I going for a run in the morning with this pounding headache, thinking, am I going to have a stroke and drop dead? And will anyone find me? And how am I going to deal with all the problems in my life? Blah, 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 blah. And now I go for a run and I hear the birds and I can smell things around me and I feel grateful for not only being sober, but for, you know, I've got a million things to be grateful grateful mm. for. And and I think, you know, just that being present, being, you know, however bad your life is, there's always something good in it. Yeah. You know, there's always something to be grateful for. Yeah. So when you think about your life now, you, you're not feeling you're missing out. Is it, there's anything that you're missing from the alcoholic days? No. No, I mean... Nothing. I mean, why? Why would I? Could you, if you met yourself then, could you have told yourself that? What would you have said? I know. I like to think. I like to think that I would have listened, and I think. Yeah, but what, what, what would you have said? <laughs> I, I might have just said you're mad. Of course I can't. But. Um, no, no, but not the you. What would you say to the old self? Oh, to the old self. What would your message be to the you? 
oh, for God's sake, no. <laughs> but was that going to work, really? What was a constructive message to you? I just, just you can change. No, I think literally it doesn't have to be like this. Yeah. And it's not that hard. I think a lot of Dan in her latest book says, you know, if I had a dollar for everyone who said, if I can do it, anyone can, I'd be re really rich. Yeah. No, that, that however bad it is, you can change. And it's it's perfectly possible and it's a lot easier than you think. And um, and it's the rewards are immense. And you just have to start. Yeah. You have to believe in yourself enough to say, I, I want my life to be different. And just... And, and have intention, have a, 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 a really strong intention, I think, you know, and know that it's, it's perfectly possible, it's not that hard, but it's also not easy. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest, you know, when you're fighting that craving, because that's what it is, that's a craving, that's not fun. Yeah, but it's only, it's, we're talking a few weeks, aren't we? Yeah. 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 You know, two to four weeks. Yeah. And, and it's not like you're having cravings 24-7. Yeah. You know, you will you will have moments where you, lots of moments where you'll think, oh, shit, I really want to drink. And then, you know, you can train your mind to do, a, a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of tricks, like externalising it, like urge surfing, like, you know, putting it outside yourself. It's it's all the act techniques, really, you know, you sort of defuse from it. Well, yeah, I'm having a craving. So yeah. what? Yes. You know? Yeah, it's raining as well outside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and move on. And over time, it's it's. I described to someone the other day, like it's like an echo. Yeah. You know, at first it's echoing back at you the whole time, and and you you need you need to put energy into it. Like nothing happens without effort, really. And for those first few weeks, you kind of have to. It's like you with your phone. Like, if you if you just keep on picking it up, because yeah. actually that's just what you're doing, yeah. but you don't really care that much. No, I don't actually care at all, particularly, but it seems to drive me. I'm, I'm still curious what's on my media at the moment. <laughs> like, in a motivating way, which is weird, right? Yeah. Hopefully that'll pass. Is that it passes, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. But you've got, you've got to put the effort. You've got to care enough. You've got to, you've got to care... You don't want to be that person yeah. who's constantly on their phone wondering what other people are thinking and saying about you. Yeah. And then you've got to put the effort in. You've got to put enough effort in to be deliberate about not picking it up yeah. or making rules with yourself or whatever's going to work for you for the change to happen because you don't get those... It's like learning to play the piano or drive a car or ride a bike or any other thing. You don't, you don't get there without wanting to get there, putting the effort in and doing and, and practicing it. Yeah. yeah. You've been listening to Preventionist Cure, brought to you by Precure.com with me, Professor Grant Schofield. At Precure, we're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behavior change programs over 29 days to you to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like 
like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at precure.com. Get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight